such a special time when we come together and seek God together. God has a divine intention for every life. Now, if you've been with us in this series, Fear of Missing Out, How to Know God's Plan, you know that that's something I truly believe. While God may not give details, he does give direction. And while God may not give a blueprint, when it comes to his will for our lives, God does often give game plans that are pretty clear and directive. And it's my conviction that every true follower of Jesus, at some point in his or her life, ought to be asking that question, God, what is your vision for me? Now, with that in mind, I want us to look, starting off here, at a very interesting scripture found in the book of Acts, chapter 26. And what we're about to look at, the Apostle Paul is standing before a guy known as King Agrippa, okay? And he's telling his story, how he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, how it revolutionized his life, how he got this, got this vision for his life, this this game plan for what God wanted him to do with his life. And he's explaining all of that to this leader, King Agrippa. I start in verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. In other words, walk the talk. We're not looking just for decisions here. We're looking for genuine disciples. And that's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I've had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. In other words, he's saying, everything I'm talking about here, it's backed up in Scripture. If you don't believe it, just check it out in the written word. It's all been written down. That the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul said, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Now, let me ask you personally, what is your vision? What is your game plan? What is your vision or direction from heaven? As we've seen in this series so far, this is a major, and I mean a major theme in Scripture. There's so many verses that talk about God directing us or guiding us. I, I think of Psalm 32, verse 8, one of my favorites, where God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 48, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Asaph was the song leader in Solomon's temple, and he wrote in Psalm 73, you guide me with your counsel. Solomon wrote, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. 
Isaiah wrote, the Lord will guide you always. And Paul wrote to the Christians in a town called Colossae, and he said the following to them, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Now we could go on and on with many, many, many more verses that have that general theme of God's guidance and direction in our lives. Again, this theme is crystal clear in Scripture. And over the next five weeks, as we continue in this series, we're going to get more practical as we go and begin to talk about exactly how God does guide. In fact, let me give you a preview of the next three weekends after this one. We're going to look at what some have called the three voices of God. How God speaks to us through Scripture, how He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit when we pray, and how He often guides us through the counsel of wise people. Some have called those the three voices of God. Well, we're going to unpack each one of those. I don't want you to miss those messages. In fact, can I make a prediction? If you're here next weekend and you get in on this message, you're going to feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant. I just want to give you a heads up about that. It's going to be incredibly valuable, I believe, because if you've been confused about why there are some things in the Old Testament that we kind of ignore and others things that we don't, you want to be here next week. We're going to talk about how God guides us through his word, the scriptures. But what is God's vision for your life personally? Now, I'm concerned as we jump in today that some of you are going to think, well, he's talking about vision, vision from heaven. This must be a message for preachers and missionaries and people who make their living in some kind of Christian vocation. And I'm concerned about that because I sense there's a strong vibe out there, a strong undercurrent, a strong belief in the Christian community that, you know, real guidance, real guidance comes to those people, the missionaries, the pastors, the, the people that are super duper spiritual. It, maybe it came to the Apostle Paul because he wrote scripture after all, but it doesn't come to ordinary people. You don't need guidance if you're a CEO. My goodness. You don't need guidance if you're a chimney sweep or an attorney. You don't need a vision from heaven. You don't need a game plan. You don't need guidance from God if you're a homemaker or a teacher in a school or the leader of an organization or if you're going into politics. You don't really need a calling for that. That's the popular thinking. But I believe that popular thinking is very misguided. Most of the significant characters in the Bible weren't preachers. And most of the movers and shakers in the kingdom of God that I've ever met weren't preachers either. The people in Scripture had all kinds of different vocations that were very diverse, and yet they were profoundly used by God because they had a vision. They had a game plan, a direction from heaven. So please don't think this doesn't apply to me because I'm not in vocational Christian ministry. I want to be crystal clear as we start. I'm not talking today about guidance for preachers and missionaries. I'm talking about guidance for everyday Christians. 
the average Joe and Jane Christian who loves the Lord with all their heart and really wants to follow his plan and walk in his will. That's who we're talking to today primarily. So I want to build it around two key questions. Here's the first one. What is God's vision for you? Whatever else you conclude about that vision, here's one thing I would insist. It needs to have its origin in God. It needs to be a vision from God. Yes, it has a subjective aspect to it. Yes, you're obviously going to be engaged in it, but it needs to have its origin in God. Jeremiah the prophet criticized some prophets in his day who were bringing messages that didn't start with God. He said, they speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. It's like they're sitting around chatting, going, well, what, what is our preferred future here? And so they become all inspirational and aspirational and become very rational about it. And they think some things up and then kind of spin it out there. Jeremiah says these visions are misguided because they don't have their origin in God. And that can be very misguiding to people. Now, my guess is that already some of you are uncomfortable because I know how this works. I think I know through all these years human nature fairly well. Some of you are already uncomfortable with the word vision because you think it's too grandiose. Okay, so let's, let's shift it a little bit. Let's change the nomenclature. Let's, let's not get hung up on semantics. I believe you could use a synonym for the word vision. That's the word Paul used. But if you want to use a different phrase, you might call it God-given desires, okay? If that makes you a little maybe more comfortable or it sounds a little more relatable to you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's a wrong way to interpret that verse. That verse does not say delight yourself in God and you'll get everything you want. Some people think it means that, try to make it mean that. What I think it's really saying is, look, when you delight yourself in God increasingly on your walk with him, your desires will become God-given desires. But note the condition. You're delighting yourself in God. That suggests a daily healthy walk with him. That suggests being engaged in all the robust, healthy, positive disciplines that are involved in a good walk with God. And if you do that, increasingly, the desires of your heart are going to be God-given desires. I think that is affirmed by what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He said, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That means that God is going to put in you the right desires and the right motivation. And then he's going to enable you to fulfill those things. And as God works in you, increasingly, your desires become coalesced with God's. It's a pretty common experience, actually. Out in the lobby, after a service, someone will walk up and start talking about a situation they're facing. And they, they're, they're looking to God for guidance. They've been praying about it. 
if they're married, maybe they've been talking with their spouse and it's a big issue in their home and they're, they're having this decision they need to make and it, the deadline is coming and, and they know what they want to do, but, th- but here's the concern. I'm really concerned, is this God's will or is this my will? Because, you know, I think it might just be my will. I'm concerned it's not God's will. And sometimes I want to say to people, have you ever considered that it might be both? Your will and God's will. Because if you're walking with God, delighting yourself in him daily, increasingly your desires begin to coalesce and often your desires become one with his. So what burning desire or vision has God put in your heart and soul today? Now, my personal story is this. I sensed God's call to preach and teach when I was 13 years old. Can I just be brutally honest with you? I hated the idea. Hated it with a passion. The last thing I wanted to be was a preacher. Really. And I let God know. And yet it was a crystal clear sense of desire, sort of this call, this By desire, I mean this oughtness. I call it a sense of oughtness. This is what you ought to do. Hated it. I began to plead with God. I'll do anything else. I began to list all of the vocations that I thought were horrible. I won't even name any of them unless some of you are doing some of them today, all right? (laughs) But I started listing all the things. God, I'll do this. I'll do this. Anything but be a preacher. Now, that's a dilemma. I think you'll agree. What do you do if you sense God has called you to something and yet really your desires aren't in sync with what you believe God's desires are? What do you do? I would suggest you keep growing. I would suggest you keep delighting yourself in the Lord as best you know how. Keep growing in him and relying on his grace. And one of the first things I did, even as a 13-year-old, is I began to test that call out, that vision. Believe it or not, some leaders in the church asked me if I would teach a class. And so I agreed. And I still can't believe the leaders allowed me to do this. But I was 13 years old, and they allowed me to teach a class of 11 and 12-year-olds. I suppose they reasoned, hey, it's on a Sunday night. There's just four or five kids in there. How much harm can he really do? I think that's probably the way they reason. But you know, I stuck with that class for a year as a 13-year-old teaching 11 and 12-year-olds. And amazingly, the students didn't flee for their lives. They stuck it out. And I learned so much. You know, you always learn more as the teacher, right? If you're leading a small group or facility, you always tend to learn more than most of the people in the group do. And I made it through a whole year without dying, and it made me wonder if perhaps God could use me in this way. A couple of years later, I got an opportunity to preach, and oh, I was horrified. I was literally trembling with fear. I had not been around platforms. I had not grown up doing this kind of thing. No one in my family had ever done that before. And yet, on March the 21st, 1976, I preached my first sermon at Gum Springs Church. There were about 150 people there. Oh, I was so scared, so insecure. And afterwards, some of the older seasoned Christians walked up to me discreetly and said, 
you know, I think God used you today. You ought to think about doing this again. And so I did, and I kept preaching all I could. And yet, inside, I kept fighting that sense of call all the way into seminary. Even in my second year of seminary, I was still pleading with God, let me be an attorney. I'll go and be an attorney. I can plead cases in a courtroom, still trying to get away from the call to preach and teach. It was not until my last year of seminary, I finally came to peace with a sense of vision God had given me for my life. I had a game plan. I had a sense that God had this direction for me. And finally, finally, after years, my desires began to coalesce with God's desires for me. And I began to actually take delight in that call. Now, obviously, not everybody's experience is going to be the same. Very few people I've ever met had a sense of that vision from heaven when they were a teenager. It happens, but it's pretty unusual. But whatever your particular direction from God may be, I believe there will probably be at least three realities about that vision. You may want to jot these ideas down. The first is, whatever that direction from God is, that, those God-given desires in your soul, it will draw you with energy more than drive you to exhaustion. I think you'd agree, some things in life drain us, right? They do. But this vision from God will be something that actually energizes you. Paul writes in Colossians 1, To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. There was an energizing aspect to Paul's work. And my best advice to leaders is, look, find the things in ministry or in leadership that energize you and try to make that the main focus of your ministry and try to do away with as much as possible those things that drain you now of course that's not totally possible right today in my life probably most of the things I do I'm not crazy about if I never had to do them again I'd be just fine with that there's a few things I get to do that I absolutely love and have a passion for. And those are the things that energize me and keep me going with joy, with passion for the Lord. There's no ideal world out there, trust me, where you can get a perfect job. If you have it, wow, I'd love to know about it. A perfect job where you don't have to do anything that you really don't love to do. I don't think I've ever met that person to this day. But as a principle, look for the things that energize you and steer away from those that drain you. I think that's just sound advice. Vision draws you with energy. It doesn't drive you to exhaustion. Vision is not, oh, I gotta do this. I gotta do it. No, vision is, wow, I can't believe I get to do this. What a privilege this is. The second thing about this vision that God gives you, it will be externally focused. In other words, it won't be just self-serving. It'll be about meeting the needs of others or some great need in the world. Jesus said about discipleship in Matthew 16, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. Your God-given vision will be outwardly 
focus. Now, friends, this is where the seduction of wealth becomes so destructive. When wealth becomes an end in itself rather than a means to an end, it is dangerous. There's nothing wrong with wealth at all. I hope we all understand that. It's wonderful. It's a great tool. It makes a wonderful tool to do all kinds of good things with. As long as it's a means to an end and not an end in itself. Paul goes on, Paul goes, says this in 1 Timothy 6, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then he says, but you, man of God, flee from all this. That's speaking about people who make wealth an end in itself. And their major life dream is simply, how much can I accumulate? That's what life is all about. That ends up being incredibly empty and disappointing because you just leave it all behind. A meaningful life is one that is externally focused. Where you're doing something that helps others and brings glory to God. Norm O'Hara left his successful business job to get a degree at Tyndale Seminary up in Canada. And Tyndale's magazine called Connection had a feature story on Norm's life. I'm going to quote now from that article. After high school, I got a job with a financial services company in Toronto where I worked as a foreign exchange trader. My ultimate goal was to become as successful and as rich as I could as quickly as I could. I put in very long hours and worked extremely hard for the company. I soon learned that if I was willing to compromise my character just a little and skirt around the edges of business, business ethics, I could become even more successful. But after several successful years at this, a series of events at work and in my personal life changed my entire outlook. I began to realize I had become a Christian sellout. I had gotten so caught up in the pursuit of what I thought was successful and worthwhile that I had settled for a career path that was shallow, self-serving, and lacked lasting value and purpose. Norm says, I began to realize that a truly successful and significant career was one that was Christ-centered, done with integrity, and which added value to society, and that had eternal significance. It wasn't until one night when my wife and I were praying for just a glimpse of what we ought to do next that it came to me. Although much of what I had accomplished in my brief business life was really a disservice to the marketplace, I couldn't escape the fact that I loved the business world and I thrived in a corporate setting. What if I could combine my interest and passion in business with my desire to live a truly significant kingdom-focused life? Norm says, with this new revelation, I moved back into business. And he goes on to talk about what a great move it was and how he's now back in the business world, flourishing, living for the benefit of other people with his true values and focus. Now, to me, that's a great 
example of a vision from heaven. A business person living and working day by day with God's kingdom in mind. That leads me to the third thing. A vision will energize you. It will be externally focused. And third, it's going to have these very positive eternal repercussions. Paul talked about, Jesus talked about this rather in Matthew 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Notice he did not say, don't store up. He said, don't store up for yourselves. Be sure you're generous, not selfish. Be sure there's a game plan. Be sure you're using money and it's not using you. Be sure money is a means to an end, not an end in itself. Money is neither good nor evil. It's what you do with it that might makes it either good or evil, virtuous or immoral. Jesus said, you want real treasures? Hey, go for the ones that last. Those are the ones that are stored up in heaven. And whenever we choose to be unselfish and do things for God's glory and the good of others, listen, we're storing up treasure in heaven. There's a ripple effect from those things according to the Bible. And what I love about that is that ripple effect just keeps on going even after we die or retire when we're doing things for the glory of God. It goes on into eternity. There's a famous story about St. Benedict. And when the <clears throat> cathedral at Monte Cassino in Italy was being built, and that cathedral still stands today, by the way, there's a famous story that came out of that as it was being constructed. Somebody walked up to some of the workers, and there were thousands of them around through the years. And he asked the first guy, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm a bricklayer, and I'm building a wall. Walked up to another guy, what? What are you doing here? The guy said, well, I'm a carpenter. I'm carving a beam. He just kept meandering around, went over to a third guy who was doing something different. He said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm a sander. I'm, I'm sanding this huge piece of marble. He kept on with his inquiry, walked up to a fourth and said, this man was digging dirt out of the ground. He said, what are you doing? With a pause and a slight glance toward heaven, the man said, I'm building a cathedral for the glory of God. That guy got it. He connected his somewhat mundane job of digging dirt with a higher purpose of God's glory. He got it. In your day-by-day -day life, do you get it? We have so many wonderful volunteers here at Grace, and I heard an inspiring story this week from one of our staff, Rich Kiernan, that just moved me when I heard this little story. Rich said that there's a dear woman who's been coming in every Monday morning for a couple of months now and helping with the building, helping clean and do some things. We have so many wonderful volunteers who help out. By the way, I hope you all know that a church could not flourish Church like Grace could not even survive were it not for amazing men and women and young people who volunteer time and serve God in all kinds of ways. Thanks be to God for the volunteers. Amen? I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible. 
we can never lose sight of that. But this woman, she is from Congo, and Rich said she speaks very little English, but through Google Translate, they manage to communicate as best they can. And so Rich wanted to be sensitive to her and sure that what he had assigned her to do and asked her to do wasn't more than her schedule and time would allow. And so we asked her about that, and her response is one that I wish I could emblazon on the minds of Christians everywhere. This dear woman, through broken English, said, if I do this volunteer work, it's for my God. And then she thanked him for the privilege of serving. She gets it. When we do what we do, whether it's bricklaying or carpentry or sanding or digging dirt, do we do it in light of the bigger picture? That's where the energy comes from. Hear me today. That means you can be an Uber driver for the glory of God. Hallelujah. If you connect it to the bigger picture, you can perform surgery and plead a case in court and program computers for the glory of God. That means you can change a diaper for the glory of God, hallelujah. You can do a load of laundry, you can mop a floor, you can teach a class, you can lead an organization for the glory of God. And whatever we do for the glory of God and the good of others, hear me today, you gotta get it. It has eternal repercussions. It can be a part of God's game plan for you. Your vision from heaven. So what is a vision? It's a God-given desire deep in your soul. It energizes you. It's externally focused. And it has these wonderful, positive, eternal repercussions. But with the time we have left, I want to quickly ask that second question. What should you do with God's vision for you? Now here, you may be a bit surprised at what I say first. Especially if you're the impatient type, you may need to let it incubate in your soul for a while. Let me explain what I mean by incubate in your soul for a while. Here's what you'll discover if you study scripture carefully. There's often a significant gap, listen, between when God gives a vision and when that vision is actually implemented. We saw it last week, didn't we? We saw in the life of Joseph how God gave him this incredible vision. His brothers were going to be bowing down to him one day. And then they couldn't stand their little brother and they sold him into slavery. And then finally he becomes second in command in Egypt. We talked about this last week. And 22 years later they walk into his presence and bow before him just like he had seen in his dream 22 years earlier, but my, what a gap between the giving of the vision and its implementation, and God was working the whole time, weaving a plan. Moses, at the age of 40, had a vision. He felt the sting of injustice as his fellow Hebrews were in slavery in Egypt. Oh, he had a passion to see them delivered. He couldn't understand why they didn't want to rise up and follow him, but the timing wasn't right. It didn't happen for another 40 years. 
but for 40 years. Think of that. He had this vision incubating in his soul. And finally, at the age of 80, God began to implement the vision. And since there's often a significant gap between the giving of this desire God puts in you and the actual unfolding of it, you may not even want to talk about it much for a while. That was true with Nehemiah. When God gave Nehemiah that vision, that deep heart desire to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the broken walls, he just kept it to himself at first. Listen to what it says in Nehemiah 2. I had not told anyone. This is Nehemiah's testimony. He had this huge heartbroken passion to go back and rebuild those walls. He said, I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Think of that. His attitude seemed to be, God, if this is really from you, I'm going to patiently wait for some of these huge jigsaw pieces of the puzzle to fall into place. But when the timing was right, he acted. That's also what Mary did. When the shepherds came to testify about all that they had seen and heard and how her baby was to be the savior of the world. The Bible says in Luke 2, but Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Think of that. If I were Mary, I'd want to go blast it all over the community. But you can spoil things by talking too soon. Sometimes God gives a vision and you just need to tuck it away because as we're going to see in the remaining passages or messages in this series, there are other factors to factor into the equation. You may need to tuck it away in your soul for a while. When God gave me a clear sense of what I was to do with my life, believe it or not, at the age of 13, I still, it blows my mind to this day, the circumstances of that. I didn't mention it to a soul, not a soul. I was ashamed of it. I didn't, like I told you, I, I hated the idea. I didn't mention it to anyone for over a year. But finally, I had this conviction that I ought to tell somebody and I ought to tell the church so they could pray for me, and I did. And they began to encourage me. And Paul's vision from heaven, guess what? He said, I wasn't disobedient to it, but you, you know what? It was at least, it's hard to reconstruct all the chronology of Paul's life, but it was at least 12 years, 12, from the time Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road till his first missionary journey. Some scholars believe as much as 15 years gap in between those. And yet the whole time, he lived in obscurity, and God was working in his life, getting him ready for impact. Sometimes we act impulsively and prematurely. I like Isaiah chapter 5. It lists all these woes there, all these woes. And one of the woes it lists in chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Woe to those who say, Let God hurry. Let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. God is never in a hurry, folks. When it comes to the unfolding of the vision, we've got to remember God's delays are not God's denials. But here's the final word of the day. When the timing is right, 
actively participate in God's vision for you. Friend, I tell you, there's nothing more exhilarating than being on journey with God into the future he has for you. For some of you, the incubation period is over. The vision, that deep heart desire God gave you, it's been tucked away for long enough now. The day's come for you to act. What would that mean for you? Do you need to go have a conversation or some conversations? Do you need to maybe stop this current season of life, close the door on it somehow, and move into a brand new exciting season God showed you a long time ago? Would it mean for some of you that you go back to school and get the education you need? Would it be for others of you opening through, going through that open door God has put before you that no one can shut? Whatever it is, I urge you to take that step of faith today with God's blessing because there is nothing more exciting, friend, than being on journey with God into the future he has for you. Father, I ask for all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would encourage us today that while your vision for our life may not always get written up in Scripture, <laughs> it may not be as grand or seem as glorious as somebody like the Apostle Paul or some great missionary we've read about in the annals of history. Yet your divine intention for us is just as personal, just as real, just as special. I ask that you would cause us to lean in closer to you, to walk with you humbly day by day so that you can direct our steps, show us the way to walk in it. And let it be like Isaiah says, whether we turn to the right or to the left, our ears will hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. Thank you for your grace, in Jesus' name, amen, amen.